Um, I'm sure, like us, you've all been completely inundated with COVID-19-related queries, um, as well as, of course, managing your own teams and your personal situations. It certainly is an incredibly challenging time, but I hope today we can at least provide some clarity and reassurance on the key employment law considerations arising from this situation. We're planning for this session to be the first of a series of calls so we can keep you updated on the changing landscape, both in the UK but also overseas through our global employment network. As I'm sure you'll appreciate from the news you're reading online or, or hearing each night, um, it is an ever-changing landscape um, and we're seeing a lot of movement day by day in the various countries that we um, cover. So we'll do our best to keep you as updated on those as possible. So we appreciate so many of you have overseas operations, but also what may be happening overseas will have an impact on where the UK may come out in the next couple of days. If there are particular issues you're grappling with that we don't cover today, please do get in touch, because um, if we're going to arrange further calls, we can either um, deal with those issues on those calls so that other people can be involved, um, or we can deal with them um, over email and add it to um, some of the bulletins that will be circulating. Um, so please do keep the issues coming. Today, we're going to look in particular at the, the main questions we've received so far as the situation has been evolving. So we'll be starting to look at um, whether or not there's an obligation to notify cases of COVID-19, what the situation is on pay, um, particularly in light of the different types of leave that your workforce may be on at any point in time, issues around remote working as more and more people move to this model, GDPR considerations, Sadly, we'll look at layoffs and short-time working, as that's something we're already receiving a number of queries about, um, albeit um, with the government's announcement last night in terms of the, some of the financial support they will be offering to businesses. Hopefully, that will provide a little bit of optimism for people um, going forward. We'll then look at some of the practical considerations on the business's usual work, so the impact on ER issues, discipline and grievances, and dealing with disputes and litigation, and just some of the tips that we've got that um, may help deal with some of those um, sort of more day-to-day -day activities. And we have thought to include the questions that you've all very kindly sent through in advance of this call, so thank you for those. Um, as I say, though, if we have missed something, do drop us an email and we'll try and deal with it by way of follow-up. So I'll make a start looking at notifications, um, as that's one of the first questions we've received as the pandemic has played out. So do you as an, as an employer have an obligation to notify any government regulatory or health body about any suspected or confirmed cases of COVID-19? Um, well, the short answer to that is no, you don't. The um, obligation to notify is one for the medical practitioner who diagnoses somebody. However, of course, you may well have other notification requirements. So for those of you who are in financial services, um, if the individual who is suspected or confirmed to be unwell is a senior manager, you may well need to not notify the regulator. As you know, um, another person can cover a senior manager's role if they're absent for less than 12 weeks, which will hopefully cover the majority of cases here. However, the FCA and PRA may well want to know what plans are in place from a business continuity perspective if things become more long-term. 
Therefore, ensuring you have good governance and clear delegations in place will be really important. And that, of course, goes for those of you in the non-financial services sector too, because ensuring continuity at senior levels will be vital in the coming months. Shareholders and employees will be facing very uncertain times and want to see very clear, strong leadership. So as part of business continuity planning, it's really important to think about who will be leading the business if your current leaders are unable to do so um, and how they're going to be able to pick up things that are currently on the desk um, so they are sufficiently familiar to be able to ensure continuity. There'll also be a need to report cases internally, um, despite the fact that you obviously have confidentiality and data privacy considerations that we'll come to look at in a bit more detail shortly. Um, however, there'll be a need for HR to know um, who has gone um, off sick, because obviously it will have an impact on pay. And it will be important for individual teams to know who's able to work and who isn't. Um, this being even more the case when people are working remotely, because it won't always be obvious as to who um, is able to work um, and who may be needing time off. We're seeing a lot of companies starting to double team when they're working on particular matters. So there's always a, a sub-team who can be sufficiently familiar with key matters to be able to step in if needed. Um, but I think having a strong communication strategy internally will be really vital as part of your business continuity planning. Looking at pay and leave, that leads us on to our, our next topic, um, which has been um, a particularly hot topic in terms of when do we have to stop, when, when can we stop paying people, what type of pay are people entitled to, um, and what happens in the various different situations of um, sickness, absence, or self-isolation. Well, of course, this, the starting point when looking at pay um, and different types of leave is to look at what the contract says. Um, no doubt you will all have various provisions in there dealing with company sick pay and potentially with dependent care leave as well, albeit that may be in a, a different policy that you will also need to dig out. One of the biggest challenges here is that as yet the government hasn't mandated closure of offices, um, albeit we should keep watching this space to see where they go. But of course they are strongly encouraging social distancing and remote working where possible. Um, but of course not all jobs can be done remotely. Therefore it will depend largely on whether the employer itself has mandated a closure or remote working or whether it remains open for critical business or for a skeleton staff. So if we look at those who have been diagnosed or those who are suffering from symptoms but haven't yet been able to be tested, and there will probably be a significant number of people in that category as we understand that testing is not readily available, um, those people will obviously be off sick um, and be entitled to contractual or statutory sick pay depending on what your contract provides for. Um, obviously, one practical consideration here is it's unlikely people will be able to provide you with fit notes after seven days of absence, as you would normally require. Um, this is obviously a very practical reason that the doctors are completely under the cosh at the moment and are not able to see people to provide the notes. So we're going to have to come to a position of trust with workforce um, that people are diagnosing themselves and genuinely are unwell. And if the government has mandated self-isolation, or in situations where somebody falls into the mandated self-isolation category, sick pay will also apply, even if that person isn't yet suffering any symptoms themselves. So this would be a situation where there is a family member um, who is off sick um, or is exhibiting symptoms, 
um, and the whole family therefore is required to self-isolate for 14 days um, or of course if somebody lives on their own that would be a seven-day period of self-isolation. Statutory sick pay would still apply in that situation um, and of course for those of you with contractual sick pay um, that's also likely to be invoked as well. Um, the same applies to anybody who's been told to self-isolate by a doctor because they've got some form of underlying health condition which may be exacerbated as a result of contracting COVID-19. If you've got somebody who isn't sick and isn't self-isolating, um, but they've said that they need to be at home to care for a dependent, um, even if that dependent themselves is not yet unwell, um, currently, there is no requirement for statutory sick pay or, and therefore contractual sick pay in that situation. But we understand the government will, over the course of the next 24 to 48 hours, be issuing some emergency legislation, which we expect to cover this. So we received a query from a client um, yesterday who said that they had um, an employee who had a dependent who had serious underlying health conditions. The employee wasn't able to come to work because if they did, and they then contracted the virus and took it home with them, that person would then become very unwell um, and therefore they weren't able to come in. So they didn't fall within the self-isolation category um, and as they not obviously sick themselves. Um, in that situation, um, the person isn't entitled to pay um, and isn't entitled to statutory sick pay as it currently stands. Um, of course, there are employers who are looking to exercise discretion in cases such as that. Um, but you do need to be thinking about what sort of precedent you may be creating, despite the fact that we'll see in a very unprecedented environment at the moment. The alternative in that situation is that the employee is allowed to take holiday so that their pay is maintained. Um, and Sheila will come on to talk a little bit about um, how holiday can be used in these situations. The other scenario that's a, a common one is where the employer has in, um, encouraged everybody to work remotely. Um, employees aren't sick and they're not self-isolating, but actually their work doesn't allow them to work remotely. Um, in that situation, if the employee is ready, willing and able to work, but you can't provide work for them to do, you will still need to carry on paying them or try to find some adjustment to their role which allows them to continue to do some work, even if it's from a different location. So we're seeing a lot of clients in the retail industry who are closing their stores, moving people who would ordinarily work in the stores to work in some of the online sales functions, um, because obviously online sales are becoming um, more and more prevalent. There's a lot of pressure being put on them. Now, of course, that, that won't work for everybody, but um, looking at whether you've got um, alternative arrangements you can put into place or changes you can make to people's activities that allow them still to be doing a job, um, it will obviously mean that you are getting something in return for the pay that you're paying them. It's also really important, and at the end we'll talk about this in a bit more detail, but from a mental health perspective, um, it's really important for people to stay active. Um, and despite the fact that some people may feel a few weeks off work is a, is a good thing, um, it's amazing how very quickly people will feel very disengaged um, and very isolated if they're not being given things to do and people to engage with. Another category of people is those who aren't required to come into work but who feel anxious um, and don't want to um, and are feeling very uncertain about the current situation. Um, those people aren't entitled to be paid unless they have actually been signed off sick with some form of anxiety by a doctor. 
Um, but of course, you need to think about reasonable adjustments in this situation. If you're aware that somebody suffers from a serious um, anxiety issue, um, has a disability, um, then thinking about what a reasonable adjustment would be, whether remote working would work in their case or not. Other adjustments that you may be able to put in place to help people would be around changing commuting times so that people are coming in at different times of day, albeit for, for those of us who have braved public transport in the last few days, you'll all know how quiet it is even at peak times at the moment. Um, but there may be other things you can do, um, such as um, people being able to take taxis into work, people being able to drive into work, um, and expensing back petrol, car parking spaces, congestion charges, etc. Um, so things you can do to try to be a little bit more creative to help those who are feeling anxious but are otherwise able to do their jobs. So on, on that note, I will um, just look very briefly at workers who aren't employees, as that's been another topic that's come up um, in the last few days. And um, what do you need to do around your contingency workers? So for those who are provided through an agency, um, it will be a matter for the agency to determine whether or not they still pay the, um, the uh, employee. Um, and that will be a matter of the contract that they've got between them and the employee. But from your perspective, you will need to dust off what your arrangement says with the agency to see if there is an ongoing obligation for you to keep paying in that situation or whether or not this would be a force majeure situation um, that would allow you to cease paying them or whether simply the fact that you're not receiving services from those workers um, is sufficient for you to cease payment. The same for self-employed people. Um, they don't get paid if they don't provide services, so that should be relatively straightforward. Um, and again, for contractors who engage directly with you rather than through an agency, um, they would be in the same situation, not entirely to be paid if they don't provide services. However, the situation becomes more tricky where they're willing to work, but you don't want them to because you've got moved into a closure situation or indeed where you're trying to just reduce cost. At that point, you need to look at the contract and see what your termination provisions are and whether actually doing some form of termination is the better approach to terminate that person's services, even if it is for a short term, and whether again you can rely on any force majeure clauses to um, get out of any of the contractual obligations that you're subject to. So I will pass over to Sheila now, who's going to look at some of the other topics I mentioned on the agenda, um, starting with the situation on holiday. Everybody, uh, Sarah said, this is Sheila. Uh, it's the first time I have spoken to so many people from my home office, and my fingers are crossed that my cat and dog don't seek attention from me, the doorbell doesn't go, or even worse, my husband doesn't start paying, playing the guitar. So my fingers are crossed. First topic I want to talk to you today is about holiday. We've been getting in loads of questions on holiday, generally around whether you can force employees to take the holiday. I would say as a starting point, I think it's better to encourage employees to take their holiday or conversely, discourage them if you're lucky enough to have an upturn in business. Uh, it's obviously better from an employee relations wise standpoint if this is done on a voluntary basis. If that doesn't work, I would suggest that you then try what we call Regulation 15 Working Time Mandating Holiday. Now, say for example, you want 
your staff to take a couple of weeks off or you'd like to reduce a five-day week to three days, you can do this under working time regulations, provided you give them double the notice of the period you want them to take off. So if you wanted them to take two weeks off, you'd need to give them four weeks. If you wanted to reduce the working week to three days, that would mean they'd be taking holiday for two days and you would need to give them four days notice. So I hope that's clear. It's something that is used a lot in manufacturing where they close down the factory for say two weeks at Christmas and they use this 15 to working time regulation to mandate that two week closure. Um, it only relates to that part of their holiday entitlement that is working time. That's the 28 days. So if you're a generous employer and you offer more, it, the, the contractual entitlement will depend on what your rules say. Uh, so it'll be a matter for the contract. In terms of pay, this is not going to help your cash flow because you are going to have to pay your employees if you're putting them on holiday. And the normal rules on payment will apply. So you'll need to include all those elements that we've talked about over the last three years on those working time cases. It will have to include guaranteed overtime, sometimes non-guaranteed overtime, where it's counted as normal remuneration and voluntary overtime again if that's included as normal remuneration. And as I say, um, it doesn't apply to contractual holiday. Uh, your rules of your policy or your contract will apply in those circumstances. I now want to talk a little bit about GDPR. Um, it's always lingering in the background and it's, it's always there to stumble you when you least want it to. Now with COVID-19 or C-19 as I call it, uh, it's a very big factor because it involves health data. And as we all know, this is a special category of data under GDPR. And one of the difficulties here with C-19 is that there is a demand to share this personal data about staff. Now, thankfully, we do have some guidance from the UK regulator, the ICO. So this was issued a couple of days ago uh, on the 12th of March. The ICO describes itself as a reasonable and pragmatic regulator who understands that, you know, some of the resources in workplaces are going to be diverted away from data protection. And so what it's not saying is the rules no longer apply. It's saying that it will make it clear that it's not going to penalize workplaces just because they've had to adapt their usual approach. So what does the guidance say? Well, on data subject access requests, it doesn't let employers off the hook. You've still got to respond to them. And also the timelines aren't going to change either. However, it does expressly state that it will make clear in its own channels of communications that everyone has to be reasonable and expect that there may be some delays. Another question that comes up time and time again is what if you do have someone who's a confirmed case of C-19 in the workplace? If they are symptomatic or even if they're not symptomatic, what do you need to tell the workforce? Well, the ICO has made it clear that employers as data controllers are able to keep 
staff informed, but where possible, they should try to avoid naming the individual. Now, obviously, sometimes this is it's it's obvious who the individual is, but from the employer's perspective, as a data controller, they need to minimise the amount of information that they're letting the workforce know, while still at the same time uh, letting them know that there are confirmed or or suspected cases within the work within the uh, workplace. Now, they have also said that it is okay to ask if employees have traveled to certain at-risk countries. Now, it just shows you what's happened in a couple of days. So this was issued on the 12th of March, but now virtually all borders are locked down. And so anyone who was traveling is probably already home. So uh, that's kind of an academic question. But they've said it is okay to ask your staff if they are experiencing uh, symptoms. Now, I know we have a number of global companies on the line, so I just want to point out that when you're dealing with other countries, you need to check what the regulators are saying, because most of them have issued guidance, including Senil in France, Grantier in Italy, and the Dutch DPA, and it's worth checking what they're saying on a daily basis. So, for example, I thought this was quite interesting. The Dutch DPA, while recognizing that these are unprecedented times, have still clarified that an employer is almost never allowed to process medical data. So in contrast to the UK, the Dutch DPA has warned employers about inquiring about the health status of individual employees or where they've been on holiday and certainly not measuring temperature. So you can see even within Europe there is a divergence of opinion, but the takeaway there is you need to check what the uh, regulators are saying because this will be an overlay on the, the data protection or GDPR rules in each country. I now want to talk about, uh, very briefly, remote working. And I hope that's going well for everyone who, uh, who was on the phone who's remote working listening to this call. Um, it's an interesting area, really, because many of us have been doing this for years. I personally have been doing it for almost uh, 20 years. But what is different in this situation is there were always support staff available within the workplace. So logistically, it's much more difficult when everything uh, has changed and everyone is working uh, from a different workplace, their home office. So what changes here? The good answer is nothing changed. Everything on remote working is exactly the same. Um, an employer will still be responsible for the health and safety, safety and well-being of their employees. And it is a different workplace now because they'll be from home, but you would still have these considerations if you were sending someone to another country uh, or if you were sending someone to a country that was near a war zone. You would always be thinking about health and safety, so it's not always just the physical workplace. So the rules remain the same. But what we've started to see is that there are a number of people with disabilities who've got reasonable adjustments in the workplace are now asking if they can have those adjustments while they're at home. And of course, you'll have to consider this on a case-by-case -case basis, just remembering that the threshold is reasonable. We've also started to see a number of requests coming in 
for a, uh, a chair or some other kind of expensive kit while they're working from home. Now, my advice would be to push back on uh, those kind of requests unless there are very good reasons for doing otherwise, because this is a temporary measure and nobody has the cash flow to duplicate physical resources in a workplace as well as at home. So while it's temporary, unless there's a disability there and you need to consider certain adjustments, I would push back on those requests. So now on layoffs and short-term working. We call this LOST. For those of you who are not familiar with LOST, it's a form of redundancy because there is a reduction in work, but it's not a permanent one. So this is a temporary solution if the employer does not want at this stage to go down the redundancy route. So what it does is allow employers who have a reduction in work to put in temporary measures to lay off employees without pay for a period of layoff or to put them on short-term working, short-time working. Here's the catch. There must be a, contract, a contractual right to lost. You sometimes will see it in manufacturing contracts. Otherwise, to do so would be a breach of contract. So if you don't have express contractual lost provision, obviously it can be negotiated as part of discussions on the future of the business. Redundancy would be a, a long-term solution, whereas lost would be a temporary solution. And if, on, an, on a future call, we'll be looking at redundancy in more detail. But so this would be a temporary measure. And um, employees, uh, are not given remuneration while they are on lost leave. They are still entitled to accrue their holiday and other benefits. So can you put an employee on lost leave indefinitely? Well, the answer is no. So it really is a temporary solution. So what will happen is if an employee or a workforce are on a layoff, or if they're on lost short-time working, if they are absent for more than four consecutive weeks or six weeks in a rolling period of 13 weeks, the employee can serve its notice. Now, that notice will either be a week's statutory notice or whatever their contractual notice to say, now, listen here, you've put me on this for months, and that's not temporary. You're just trying to avoid paying me redundancy pay. Here is my notice that I will be claiming statutory redundancy pay. Now, the employer can serve a counter notice uh, to say that it intends to be back to normal working for at least 13 weeks, and therefore the process begins again. So these rules, as Sarah mentioned a little bit earlier on, these rules may change, and we're eagerly awaiting what the government's going to announce on its package for employees and employers, and we think there may be changes uh, to the lost rules. We think this because uh, we can see what's happening in continental Europe, and we know that the Netherlands government is, for example, chatting to our government. So in, in places like France, Spain, Italy, Germany, and the Netherlands, they've all implemented emergency schemes to underwrite payroll costs 
where employees need to move to short-time time working arrangements. But, again, it's just a changing so fast because there was a new scheme in Netherlands, but the government has announced overnight a change to its short-term working scheme due to the unprecedented demand in this pandemic and the need to uh, support more employers. So uh, a new scheme should be announced within a few days. So it's a matter of watch this space. I'm going to finish up by talking a little bit about handling disputes and employee relations. So it's one thing for us to be agile and switch everyone to home working, but what happens with the courts? I mean, there are real concerns about court management of witnesses and parties. Now, on Tuesday afternoon, the Lord Chief Justice, which is kind of the boss of the civil courts, issued a statement saying that given the rapidly evolving situation, there is an increased need to do meetings and hearings by telephone and video technology. And what they're going to be doing over the next few days is writing emergency legislation to change the civil procedure rules uh, to allow this to happen more readily. Now, today, just a few hours ago, the president of the EAT has issued some guidance and is pretty much giving the same strong message to say that the starting point should be that uh, pre-management hearings are all done by phone, video conferencing where that will be possible. Um, so I think we're going to, they're expecting parties to agree what can be done uh, over the phone or by video conferencing. Now they do recognize that the VC uh, capability is not the same uh, around the around the country as it is in London. I was talking to some of my colleagues today and one of them's got a hearing coming up in Yorkshire and she was saying that the approach that uh, this particular tribunal is taking is to front load all the cases so that if someone pulls out because they've got C19, they can quickly shoehorn another case in to take over very quickly. So just in terms of um, managing, uh, I think there's going to be more to be done uh, up front and it will be less of a relaxed timetable in t terms of when you get your witness statements and everything together. Um, another colleague said that one thing that they're making sure, it's a kind of a tip, it's a practical tip, is as well as addresses, they're making sure that all the documentation has emails in it in case anything gets uh, lost or with less people delivering in case it doesn't reach its destination. So that's another way of making sure that you get everything electronically. And another point I just wanted to mention was uh, some of my colleagues going for an injunction have found it a little bit more difficult to get a barrister at such short notice. Now, that doesn't mean to say you can't get one, but there are less available at the moment to do that emergency work. So um, that's just something to bear in mind. Finally, from me, um, I just want to touch on business as usual. I mean, how should uh, disciplinaries, investigations, recruitment, how is this going to be done remotely? Can it be done remotely? I mean, none of us know how long this is going to go on. Uh, the short answer is yes, that these are really unprecedented times, and we just need to make the most of what we have. I mean, I think it's going to involve some messaging 
with employees so they understand the new process that's going to happen. Because if we take, for example, a right to a companion and grievance and disciplinaries, I mean, how is this going to work? I mean, I'm no uh, technology expert, but I am, I am thinking that you could have the companion and the employee on one conference call and the other parties on another, and it may be that you need to take breaks every 10 minutes so that the companion and the employee uh, can converse together. I think what we have to do is look at creative ways of doing this virtually and just flexing our processes a little bit to accommodate it. Always messaging and explaining why it's necessary to do this will be very important. What I think employers shouldn't be doing is parking everything, including performance management, until C19 is finished and we've, we've got a vaccination for it. I mean, that would be just putting everything on the back burner and will cause problems later on. So I would suggest that you do as much as possible by virtual technology. I am now, and thankful that no doorbells rang, I am now going to hand over to Sarah. Thank you, Sheila. Can you just confirm you can hear me? I can hear you, Sarah. Perfect. In that case, I'll assume everyone else can as well. Thank you. Um, really interesting to hear what you say about litigation. I've got a call and um, a hearing at 2 o'clock this afternoon, which has been dealt with over the phone, where we're seeking an adjournment to the case that's due to start on Monday. Um, one of our witnesses, who is also our main instructing client, is overseas and unable to travel. Um, and even though um, could, in theory, give evidence over VC, obviously the ability for us to take instructions from him or any of his colleagues during the hearing when he's not physically in the room with us would be um, seriously impaired. However, we're finding the court is not particularly sympathetic to our plight at the moment. Um, so we've got this call at 2 o'clock to see if we can um, make some way forward to get the case postponed. But I think that that is indicative of the courts being reluctant at this stage to just wholesale postpone trials, given we don't know how long this could go on for. Um, so I think the more you can think about video conferencing um, as a real viable alternative, the better. I mean, Sarah, it's quite interesting because you were telling me about you did some recruitment via video conferencing, and whereas everyone thought it was going to be detrimental to the candidates, you didn't find that or you put arrangements in place so it wasn't. Yeah, absolutely, and um, I, I take no credit for that at all because those who set it all up did an amazing job. We did our annual partnership selection two weeks ago, which is one of the most business-critical things that we as an organization do, um, and it's global, obviously, because we're making up partners across the world and those who assess existing partners who are also global, um, and we had to do all of that through VC, so um, in each session there'd be four people dialing in from different geographical locations. Um, and you're absolutely right, Gita, it's something where people are very nervous about that being successful and about being able to build rapport and really um, allay concerns of candidates and, and um, make sure that you can really connect with them. But actually, it was hugely successful. And um, I did a blog not long afterwards, which some of you may have seen, um, saying that you know one of the potential upsides of this, and I hate to call it um, this situation to have upsides because it's so serious for so many, but I do think that the world will change as a result of this virus. Um, and I think that people really will start to embrace remote working in a very different way. 
And, and I think that, you know, that is something that, you know, we can take away from this and show the benefits of how people can still be hugely efficient and do a lot of things that otherwise they would travel to do. Um, and I think, again, looking at your ESG and um, situation, and I know that we're seeing more and more employees blowing the whistle about ESG-related issues, the fact that travel budgets will be so severely cut as a result of people not being able to fly to places will make people rethink about how important flying really is and travel really is in all situations. And I think that might um, be something that in the medium term to long term, we sort of see people begin to really challenge companies on how um, they are incurring that money. Anyway, that could be a whole topic of itself, so I won't go any further on that, but one to watch out for. Um, another question that we had in the run-up to today's session was about the ability to retract offers that have been made to new employees. Um, as you will be able to retract an offer. Um, it will depend a little bit on what stage you're at in the recruitment process as to the implications of the retraction um, and also what the offer letter or the contract itself may say. Um, but obviously, if the contract hasn't been expressly accepted by the individual, um, then you could withdraw it as long as you get in quickly before they do accept it. Um, if they have accepted it, then you would still be able to re retract the offer and doing so on notice. So you would be applying whatever notice period would apply under the contract. Um, appreciate that is a difficult situation for many because they might already have resigned from where they currently are or might not currently be in work and may have um, been delighted to receive the offer from you. Um, but you know, obviously, from a business perspective, if you need to make those difficult decisions, um, you will be able to do so. So just to finish off, um, I, I want to just spend a couple of minutes looking at kind of energising and boosting morale of people when you're working remotely. Um, I know many of you have remote working in place already. Some people working remotely for longer periods than others will each week. Um, but for some, it will be the odd day each week rather than something that is permanent um, or long term or you know, um, for over a prolonged period. Um, I think in these situations, it is incredibly difficult as managers to ensure that people still feel very connected. Um, I've had a number of conversations with my um, fellow partners and with our fantastic HR team um, and also just with friends as well as to what's the best way to do this and how can you do it in a way that feels real for your team and allows you to, to still stay connected. Um, anyone who's spent time with our team will know that we thrive on banter. Um, and that's one of the things that you know really does kind of require a bit of face-to-face -face time. So we've had to be quite creative. Um, if anyone on the phone has come up with some creative ideas um, that they're doing with their own team, please do share them. Um, it'd be great to kind of hear what people are up to because I'm sure that we'd all like to copy them. One of the things that's worked very well for our team is we've got a team WhatsApp. Um, and it just allows a bit of banter that you, you, know, you wouldn't necessarily have on email because email tends to be you know, much more work-related or know-how and business-related. Um, this allows us to have a little bit of fun, whether it be sharing videos, whether it be sharing photos, um, sharing a bit that's going on amongst our communities and what we're doing um, individually to help around our communities, silly things that our pets are doing. Just little bits here and there to kind of just keep us um, connected in a much more informal way. We're obviously having regular calls, um, but I do think that calls tend to be dominated by certain people on them, and I put myself in that category. Um, so it's not always easy for everybody to have a voice on the call. 
Um, so whilst they might be hearing what's going on from a pipeline of business perspective or current issues, um, it's not quite the same as the informality that you would have in the workplace. Um, we've seen clients who said they're doing quizzes or riddles, um, even some who are kind of doing um, TV and film reviews where they're watching um, things that are actually quite relevant to the kind of things we as HR and employment practitioners um, are interested in. So, um, as you know, there's been a number of films recently and um, TV productions looking at some of the issues coming out of the sexual harassment um, cases. Those are the kind of things people could actually watch and, and really take some good learnings from. There's also some really good tools available through organisations such as the City Mental Health Alliance, um, who have published some great tips um, for people who do um, suffer from periods of poor mental health, um, but also for all of us where this is a difficult time. Um, and it's very clear that routine is really important, so making sure that people are still getting up at normal time, getting themselves ready almost as if they were coming to work making sure they take regular breaks in the day, as they perhaps would if they were at their desk, um, not just sort of sitting at home at the kitchen table for sort of 20 hours a day. Um, also making sure that work is shared around, because I suspect there will be some teams who are less busy than others at this time. Um, and obviously when people are remote, it's not always easy to see quite how busy everybody is. Remembering some people will be living alone, um, some people will be in one-bedroom flats which they share with other people or other shared accommodation, so not everybody will have space to be able to um, move around or escape family members um, and just get a bit of headspace and that can be really important. Um, not everyone might be well enough to be able to take exercise outside um, and get fresh air, they might not have gardens or balconies they can even go and sit on. Um, so it's really important when you know, you're, you're sharing work around and talking to people that you think a bit about what their working environment is like and the pressures they may be under at home whilst trying to juggle things at work as well. Um, ACAS has also today issued some really helpful guidance on some of the things that we've been talking about. Um, it's quite short and sweet and, and accessible as the ACAS guidance tends to be, so it's very much worth a read. Um, and it brings together some of the themes um, that I've seen other bulletins and podcasts about and brings it all under one roof. So I think if you're going to look at anything, that would be a good starting point. Anyway, we'll wrap up for today. Um, very um, grateful to all of you who have joined the call today. Thank you ever so much. I hope the technology um, has worked um, for you to be able to sufficiently follow what we've been talking about. Um, as I said, we have recorded and we will be following up with um, something in writing and we'll be setting up a, a call in the next couple of days um, for regular updates. So anyone who has a burning issue that we haven't covered off, please do send it through um, and we will make sure we either include that in the next call or that we come back to you on that separately. Um, in the meantime, I do hope you, your teams and your families all stay healthy. Um, if there is anything we can do to support, please do not hesitate to let us know. Thank you so much again for your time today. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.